I've been in pastoral ministry for 43 years. I've visited innumerable homes. I've sat by countless beds. I've wept many tears with many hurting people. And on many occasions, I've opened Israel's songbook with those that I'm visiting, and I have shared one of the psalms from there, because they so often seem to capture the thoughts and the feelings of those who I'm ministering to. So, for example, we've looked at Psalm 23, as it speaks of the journey that the great shepherd takes his people on. Surely your goodness and love will follow me. It's what we've just been singing. We've opened Psalm 139 and reflected on God's perfect knowledge of us. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. We've visited Psalm 34 and taken comfort from the fact that blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. And there have been many, many other psalms that we've gone to. But the psalm I've gone to, more than any other, is the psalm that we're looking at this morning, Psalm 13. It is one of the least known, yet it is one of the most profoundly helpful psalms for struggling people. Now, before we get down to seeing why this psalm resonates with so many of us, we need to see how it's constructed, as this will shape how we handle it. And there are three clear verses, or maybe it's easier to say stanzas, which the NIV has helpfully divided up for us. So if you have your Bible open, as I hope you have, page 548, if you're using a church Bible, you will see that there are three paragraphs, three stanzas. And each stanza has its own emphasis. So there's verses 1 and 2, the first stanza, and verses 3 and 4, the second stanza, and verses 5 and 6, the third stanza. And the last thing to notice is that David, the writer, deliberately decreases the number of lines in each stanza. So you'll notice verses 1 and 2 contain five lines. Verses 3 and 4 contain four lines. And verses 5 and 6 have three lines, although the NIV doesn't reflect the Hebrew shape in the way that it has laid it out for us. And, and the reason for this is that it pictures for us movement from trouble to peace. So what is it about this psalm that connects with so many of us? Well, it's there in the opening stanza. I've called this a cry of desolation. The first stanza, a cry of desolation. Verses 1 and 2, how long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Now, these are audacious words. 
These are complaining words. These are critical words, yet here they are in the middle of our Bibles. In fact, a more literal translation would be, how long, Lord, will you go on and on forgetting me? You see, this isn't someone complaining about a particular event. This is someone who, over a period of time, feels that God has abandoned them. For David, the author, he might be referring to the time that he was escaping from King Saul. We don't know. But at that time, he was under constant pressure. He was running from one place to another, never knowing if at the next moment Saul would find him and kill him. And it went on and on, and there was for him no immediate answer, just a sapping, draining, seemingly never-ending period of stress and anxiety and unanswered prayer. You know, actually, there are many occasions in the Bible when it says that God remembered people and situations. And it doesn't mean that God is forgetful, but rather that he acted in mercy towards those particular people. So for the psalmist, when nothing happens, when there are no answers to prayer, when there's no response to the hard situation, then the natural complaint is that God's forgotten. He's not paying attention. He doesn't seem to notice. And that's precisely what some people here are thinking. For years now, they've been struggling with the silence. Struggling with God's absence. Wondering if God has even heard their prayer. For some, it's to do with their children. Maybe there have been physical health issues or mental health problems or behavioral issues or spiritual desertion. And it's been years now. And still, heaven is silent. For others, it's to do with the relationships. Some longing to be married, some wishing they hadn't. And there are personal battles with health. What the Bible at times calls thorns in the flesh that just won't go away, but are yet causing such distress and incapacity. And you think that God could use you greatly if only you were freed from it, but you've asked and asked, but it just hasn't happened. Others in our congregation battling cancer. Loved ones wasting away. Deep repeating depressions, addictive behaviors that don't seem to be conquered, can't be conquered. Little wonder, the psalmist goes, how long, Lord, will you go on and on forgetting me? And for some of us, this sense of abandonment comes from a sense of failure or guilt. You see, that's implied in David's next question. How long will you hide your face from me? How long will you hide your face from me? You see, the priestly blessing that had been long known by David and his compatriots said this, there in Numbers 6, 24 to 26, where the blessing was this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face 
shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. You see, God's face smiling upon you implied friendship. It implied acceptance. But God hiding his face implied his displeasure. And for some of us here, there's that haunting thought that God is angry with us, that our sins haven't been covered, that God is against us. Oh, when will we know what it is to be delivered from our guilt and shame, to feel clean and accepted, to to delight in God's love? At times on a Sunday, it feels as if we're hanging on by our fingernails. We put on the smiles. We mumble the cliched pleasantries. We engage in inoffensive small talk. But underneath, we're struggling with really believing that God accepts us. Little wonder that David goes on to ask, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts? And day after day have sorrow in my heart. You see, because when you struggle thinking that God has either forgotten you or is angry with you, then inevitably there's massive interior turmoil. Conflicting thoughts, sleepless nights, internal arguments, all resulting in a swirl of emotions with sorrow predominating. And you just ache for that peace of God to quieten the voices and to rule in your heart. And David's final complaint was that his enemy was triumphing over him. Well, in a particular and personal way, he did know the physical reality of that. And whilst it may be true for some here that there's an individual that causes you deep grief, for most of us, the enemy who causes us most distress is our own fallen, foolish, weak natures and our lack of self-knowledge and self-control. So do you get it? Can you see why this psalm resonates with so many? It, It probably resonates with some of you here even this morning. And indeed, throughout the history of God's people, countless others have struggled in this way. But there's an honesty about it which is both surprising and encouraging. You see, someone else has gone through what I'm going through. Someone else understands. And it's all right to bring these thoughts to the surface. But the psalm doesn't end there. And how glad we are that it doesn't. We move on to the next stanza. And we notice this. Secondly, there is a cry of desperation. A cry of desperation. Verses 3 and 4. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. Although David feels abandoned, he knows whose presence he so desperately wants. It's, It's the Lord. It's Yahweh. It's Jehovah. And as in verse 1, he uses God's covenant name, Lord. It's in capital letters in your Bible. The name that means God is a promise-keeping God. 
And therefore, he audaciously gives God three commands. These are imperatives in the text. Look on me. Answer me. Give light to my eyes. See, he's already accused the Lord of hiding his face from him. So now he pleads that the Lord would turn his face towards him and look on him. His feelings tell him that God is no longer talking to him. So he boldly says, answer me, talk to me, give me an answer. You see, he's also conscious that he's wallowing in his confusion and desolation. So he adds, give light to my eyes, which elsewhere has been translated as restore the sparkle to my eyes. You see, he's fearful that if things go on as they are, his life will be over. And God's enemies will be able to mock that God wasn't faithful to his servant, that he wasn't true to his word. Don't let that happen, David, please. Vindicate your cause. Be seen and adored as the faithful God. And for us. When we feel abandoned and forgotten, when it seems that God is against us and not for us, when we're aching for joy and peace, we need to follow David's example and stake everything on that relationship that God has brought us into. You see, just as David called God the Lord my God, the Lord my God, So we can do the same. We cry out to him. Claim again that relationship. Have the confidence to come before your heavenly father and call upon him to intervene. For if you're a believer here this morning, it didn't come about because of your hard work, because of your morality, because of your religiosity. It came about through the work of Jesus Christ who did all that was needful to deal with your sin and to bring you into a relationship with our holy God. It was Jesus, there on Calvary's cross, who was truly separated from God as he took your sin and failure and all its consequences. It was Jesus who cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we don't have to? It was Jesus who defeated God's enemies, including death itself, in his resurrection from the grave. So our hope doesn't rest on our feelings and emotions, changeable and broken as they are, but upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it's on that basis that we can cry out to him in desperation at any time. And when, like David, we remind ourselves of that, it leads us to, thirdly, that third and final stanza, a cry of dedication. A cry of dedication. Verses 5 and 6, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You see, as David thinks about that covenant relationship with God that he's been brought into, it inevitably reminds him of God's grace, of God's chesed, of God's unfailing love. 
He holds on to the fact that God is always working in love for his children. He reminds himself that God knows what he's doing. He reminds himself that God has always been good to him. And so he responds in three ways that come from the will, not from the feelings. He says, I trust. I rejoice. I will sing. Now, each of these words in the original carry the sense that this is something that David determines to do on the basis of what he's reminded himself of. So let me try and apply that to each believer here this morning. Because there will come times when you will feel attack. When the Lord will feel distant. When you might think he's forgotten you or even that he's punishing you. Times when certain pressures or worries become unbearable. Times when painful circumstances overwhelm. This happens. It's not unique to you. It's described here in Scripture. And at such times, we need to make sure that our emotions and our feelings don't swamp the truth of God's loving covenant with each of his children who've been saved by Jesus. We need, if I could say it like this, to think as clearly as we can. We need to bring these truths to mind. As David says, we trust in his unfailing love. That's the basis on which David was working. He says, this is how I'm thinking. These are my emotions. But what I'm deliberately going to bring to mind, what I'm going to remind myself of, is that covenant loving relationship that God himself by his grace and mercy, has brought me into. And I'm going to respond deliberately on the basis of those truths. We trust, he says, in his unfailing love. Later, when the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Rome, he said this, well-known verses, verse Romans 8, 28, and then 31 to 32. Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. In all things God is at work. In the pain, in the tears, in your sin, in all things God is at work to those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And then verse 31, he goes on and says, What then shall we say in response to these things? He's inviting his, his listeners there in that church at Rome to, to use their minds to follow the great logic of the gospel. If God is for us, he says, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? It is stunning logic. It drives you back to those truths that you know. You may be saying, oh, but God's forgotten about me and look at the mess that I'm in and the problems that I'm going through, which are absolutely genuine, but they don't trump the wonderful truth of God's covenant, love, and mercy. That God is working out His purposes for good. As Peter reminded believers in 1 Peter 5, verses 7 to 9, he said to them, 
Cast all your anxiety on him. Why, Peter? Why can we do that with our anxiety? Because he goes on, because he cares for you. Do you see, he's reminding them of this truth. How can you do that? Why can you do that? Because he cares for you. That's the bottom line. That's the truth for all of God's children. And so he goes on to say, be alert and of sober mind. You see, he's saying, think about it. Think about it as far as you can. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. Hold on to what you know. Or as the Apostle John brings the last words of Scripture. You see, here we are. We are asking, how long, Lord? As I struggle in this way, as I know this pain, how long, Lord? Final words of Scripture, Revelation 22, verses 20 to 21. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. I am coming soon. And so do you see as we sit here this morning in this particular congregation, as we are here disturbed and distressed by many things that are troubling our lives, as maybe some of you are grappling in far deeper ways than we could ever understand that sense of abandonment and desolation, what does the psalm teach us? Articulate them, bring them to the surface, be real and honest, but at the same time deliberately, willfully, consciously remind yourselves of this truth, that God is reigning and you are his child. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've been born again by his spirit, then he is your father, God, and his love will never depart from you. It may not always seem like that. You may wonder about the particular path that you are following at this moment, but let me tell you, God's saving grace in your life, the fact that he's taken you from being a hell-deserving sinner to someone who knows his grace poured out in your lives, that he's taken you and turned your life around, my friends, that just is so incomparably greater than all the distresses and pains you go through, however real. I'm not trying to minimize what you go through. I'm not trying to say they don't matter. They do. They break a heart. There will be many a tear that is wept behind closed doors. But the truth remains. Our sovereign, gracious God reigns. And he is good. And he knows what he's doing. And therefore, deliberately, deliberately, we call out to him. We come to him with that cry of desperation. Lord, Hear me, respond. And deliberately we say, I'm going to rejoice in you. I may not be able to rejoice. I may not be able to sing because of the situation that I'm facing, but I'm going to sing in this. I am yours and you are mine. You are my God. You are my Savior. And I know this time on earth is but uh, the blink of an eye. I know I'm going to spend eternity. I know I'm going to be restored and I'm going to be renewed and I know I'm going to see Jesus. So I will give you the praise and I will give you the glory. Let's pray.
Father, I'm very conscious that for some here in this congregation, there are deep issues. Deep issues of pain and distress, a sense of abandonment and desolation. And Father, we thank you for the scriptures. Thank you that as we see from Psalm 13, that this is not a unique experience, but one that is common to so many of God's people. But Father, we thank you for the truth that shines through, that you are the covenant-keeping God, that you are true and faithful, that you do indeed work all things together for good. Thank you that we can sing of your unfailing love, whatever we are going through. So give us strength to apply this in every area of our lives, we pray. For our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we ask these things. Amen. And we're going to sing that song that we practiced earlier. I say practice, you don't practice the song that we sang before the service formally began, which 